there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and welcome to the first ever Your Politics podcast recorded before a live audience. I'm Sandra Hurley. And this evening we are delighted to be in University College Cork as guests of the UCC Government and Politics Society. I'm joined by Sinn Féin TD for Cork South Central, Donica O'Leary. Uh, shortly, we're going to be joined by the Fianna Fáil Cork East TD, James O'Connor, and we're also joined by Dr. Theresa Reedy, Senior Lecturer and Head of Department at UCC's Department of Government and Politics. So, welcome everyone. It is great to see so many students here. Thank you so much for turning out to see us. And I wanted to start with something a little lighter before we get into the more serious political questions, because I know my two guests here beside me both went to UCC. So, Donica O'Leary, you were a law student at UCC. Tell me about your time here. Yeah, look, it's great to be back. It's 15 years since I started in UCC. I don't know how that happened, to be honest. It's just flown. Um, it was a really, look, I mean, I suppose UCC was where I really started in politics, um, where I joined Sinn Féin. And, I kind of never really look back from there. Um, and, like, I mean, UCC is a terrific environment, really good at supporting the clubs and societies and different things like that, or certainly was in, in those times. And uh, So it's all, all hard work for you, no play, right? No, no, no student messing. Yeah, no, well, look, I'm, I'm sure, like, I could probably, uh, I think for this generation of students 15 years ago, I might as well be 50, and if I started naming <laughs> nightclubs, they might as well be from the Stone Age. But, um, but yeah, no, look, there was a great social life. And I'm lucky as well. I, uh, I'm still in touch with a lot of lads. I was at a wedding there a fortnight ago with some of the lads from the class. So, look, you make fantastic connections and there's great crack. But you learn it's a terrific university. Mm. Uh, very proud to have got my degree there and my early political training. And lots of debates, in fairness as well, mm. good-natured debates with people from other political parties, some of which I'm still in touch with as well. So. Okay. Uh, and Teresa, you did your undergraduate here as well as working here now. Uh, I did indeed, yes. It's, it's a little bit longer again since uh, I did my undergraduate uh, degree here more than 25 years ago. Um, I sometimes explain in classes about how we, we had photocopiers in those days. No email, no mobile phones, uh, but photocopiers. And uh, yeah, it's a wonderful place to, to work. And I went away and came back then and did my PhD, uh, and I've been working here again on and off uh, since uh, about 2004, and it's, it's remarkable how the campus has changed, um, how the student body has changed, um, and it's such a kind of diverse and exciting and challenging place to, to work and, I think, to study uh, today. So let's start with the cost of living. It's the big political uh, issue at the moment, and... There's huge pressure from the opposition, Sinn Féin in particular, on the government to do more. Sinn Féin is promising 1.4 billion, they're saying a mini budget. Where is that money going to come from? There's so much pressure on the public finances at the moment. Yeah, well, look, I mean, as with any of these initiatives, they have been fully costed and that has been outlined in, in what has been published. And some of it is in relation to savings, some of it is in relation to additional taxation measures, including a, a solidarity tax on incomes above 140,000. The point I make in relation to the cost of living crisis is that it has come to the centre of the political agenda at the minute, but this is not a new issue. And Sinn Féin has been talking about a cost of living crisis for about a year and a half, because while the issues around fuel and supply of issues is enormous and people are having to make really, really hard decisions. Um, I was speaking to a constituent today and I had been previously speaking to uh, his, his daughter uh, in relation to that appointment, and this man, you know, saves, he wears a coat and a hat, he's from the city originally, living out in West Cork because that's all he can afford to rent, he wears a coat and a hat at night, doesn't turn the heating on, so can, he can afford the price of petrol to get up to the city to see his family. So people are having to make hard decisions, but it isn't just about fuel and it isn't just about those supply issues, it's also about the cost of childcare, it's also about the cost of rent, which is absolutely enormous. If you have a family that has children, that it has to pay for childcare and is renting. That's almost two thirds of your income gone before you're even looking at anything else. That's before you're looking let, at let me ask you about the, the carbon tax. Uh, there's an increase next month, mm. and Sinn Fein for a long time have called for this to be deferred or delayed. 
Are you being a bit disingenuous? Because it's only going to add about one euro fifty onto a monthly bill. It's not even going to make a big difference to people. And there's very good reasons. Climate action, the increases are ring fenced. There's good reasons for having those increases. Look, I mean, I, there's two things I'd say in relation to that. First, I don't think it's disingenuous because, like, I mean, if it's a question as to whether energy bills should be increased by the government or not, I think the answer is they should not at this point in time, whatever leverage they have. The other thing is we have been arguing for further reductions in excise, uh, in particular uh, in relation to home heating oil. There is scope to take another nine cent off a of diesel, another 12 cent off a of petrol, which does undoubtedly add up when you take into account the amount of litres. But the big one for me, and again it comes back to people's hardships and people's ability to live a decent quality of life, for people who have to heat their homes with oil, the fact that there has been no removal of the excise duty on home heating oil. Um, I find that very difficult to understand because these are the people who are having to make those hard decisions and they don't really have governments today all talking about how you can change your behaviour and choice and all that. And yeah, there are things a lot of us can do, but there are some things that some people cannot do. They and, have to heat their homes and that's just a fact. That. Uh, James O'Connor has joined us now. James, thanks for coming along. Um, on Thank the carbon you. tax, we know there's a bit of a rumpus in both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael backbenchers saying that the government shouldn't go ahead with the increase next month. Where do you stand on that? Look, I think it's a very difficult time for so many people, given the, the situation that's happening in Ukraine, the knock-on impact it's having on the cost of living. But look, from my perspective, I would be quite concerned in regards, you know, tackling the climate, the climate, I suppose, new climate change measures, including the carbon tax. You know, as a young person, I'd question how much of an impact that's realistically going to have. And just to respond to some of the points that opposition have been making, you know, we have to be extremely careful about how we manage the public finances. We are borrowing. We've been borrowing extremely large amounts of money since COVID began. And we need to mind that deficit as well. So uh, here on out for the next number of years, it looks like it's going to be quite unstable internationally. And I think when it comes to the cost of living, you know, there's so much government can do without being, I suppose, to a degree reckless. And we have to be very careful in that regard. So you're not backing that move on delaying the carbon tax. But do you think the government should do more? I'm sure your constituents are telling you that they need more help. Well, carbon charges are the responsible way of cutting down uh, on, on the amount of carbon in the economy. Helping people to transition is also important. I'd like to see more being done in that regard. I'd openly admit that as a government TD. You know, even in the sector I'm most familiar with, where I grew up, I grew up in an agricultural background, living at home today with, with my parents on our family farm. You know, that's a very carbon-intensive industry, and there isn't incentives there at the moment that that pretty much incentivise people uh, to go to more more, more greener practices, whether it's the generation of renewable energy, microgeneration, also looking at the whole switch to electric vehicles in Ireland. It's so expensive. I'd love to be driving an electric vehicle, but quite frankly, for my driving needs, I can't afford one. So, you know, there well, are the many, many issues. What, what should the government be doing on that? What concrete measures do you think they need to bring in? They're not going to make it to the budget in October, realistically. I think we will, uh, be, be quite honest. We have to be very, very careful at what is a very fastly adapting situation. You know, we cannot react overnight, or even on a weekly or monthly basis, as some of the opposition have been suggesting, uh, to every single issue that arises. And we have to be extraordinarily prudent with the public purse at the moment, because look, when taking everything into consideration, the, the past two years of COVID have been extraordinarily expensive on the state, adding to an already large national debt. So there's only so much that we can do okay. within the scopes of reason. And I think I, I would I would urge on the side of caution here, rather than reacting uh, to every single issue that arises. But I would say, just I, I think it's worth like making a point again, James. Like, you know, some of these issues have increased in their urgency in recent months in relation to fuel and supply and fertilizer and different things like that but some of them have been with us for a while in relation to the price of rent and the fact that the government hasn't moved on the need for a rent freeze and there hasn't been any reduction in childcare um, costs that, either for families over the last year I accept so. the premise of what Dunnick is saying I'm a young person I'd like to one day own my own home and I by being in government we can actually impact these issues uh, and that's something that I feel very passionately about. And over the course of the lifetime of the current government, I will sincerely say that there will be significant progress made on the issue of housing. And the issue, hopefully, of the cost of housing as well is something that I, I, I would like to see us reaching a tipping point with property prices easing off and increasing supply as well. But in order to impact that, Donica, one must go into government and one must stand enough candidates to actually go into Let government. Let me go to Dr. Theresa Reedy. The government has been trying to tell people that they can't mitigate all the effects of rising inflation. They're trying to sell that message that the government can't insulate everybody from what's happening in terms of prices. How difficult a message is that to sell? Well, I think that's a very difficult message to sell. And it, 
especially because the cost of living crisis is going to impact variably on people. So most often it will be some of our kind of poorest citizens who are already actually struggling to make ends meet that will be most affected and impacted by the cost of living crisis. But at the same time, there's something of a weight of history as well on this because the you know, we don't have to go back too many decades to a time when governments borrowed excessively, uh, ran up very large debts, and the country endured prolonged recessions all through the 1980s as a cost of similar types of dynamics in the global system. So I think that, you know, that is in, in the background all the while. I mean, much of the inflation, m most of the inflationary pressures are not domestic. They're not actually coming from within the Irish state. Um, what's really driving the surge at the moment are supply chain issues, um, kind of which are still with us since the, the COVID crisis, impacts of COVID on energy production, and then, of course, the, the war in Ukraine, uh, which is probably the most uncertain of those, which has really accelerated the problem, particularly, again, in energy and food markets. Um, so, I mean, most of these are well beyond the uh, the, the, the remit of, of the government. It really, all it can do is actually um, moderate the effects for the most vulnerable in, uh, in society. And even there, you've already heard lots of the economists coming out saying that these effects have to be targeted because we have to be very careful of getting into an inflationary spiral where governments um, increase pay or, or, or engage in measures that are not targeted and ultimately that feeds a, sp a spiral of inflation. So it's a highly unpalatable message but it is unfortunately where the government is at. I don't entirely agree that they will get to the next budget though um, without doing something further. I think it's going to be quite likely that they will have to respond um, to circumstances as they arise. Uh, the, the energy costs probably will, will go down a little um, because we're just moving out of the winter, but food costs um, are going to become a very serious issue and I think will actually rise higher up the agenda. And I, I've no doubt but that the government will have to respond in some way to that. So let's move on to the war in Ukraine. You mentioned it there, obviously, uh, Teresa. Over the past few days, we have seen terrible pictures of Russian atrocities in Ukraine. On Wednesday, the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will address a, jo a historic joint sitting of the Dáil and the Shannad. Donica, Europe has imposed tough sanctions, but it can't agree so far on an embargo on buying, uh, on banning the purchase of Russian oil and gas. Should they be doing this? Should they be going further? Yeah, no, I believe that, like, I mean, look, obviously it needs to be a question of Europe acting in concert, but we should be doing everything that we can to ensure that Putin's war machine uh, is not benefiting from from the euros and, and other currencies of European citizens. Um, and I think a lot more needs to be done in relation to that. I do believe that Putin was surprised by the relatively unified um, response of Western leaders, and I think that that is is welcome. It has put him under pressure. Now, like, I suppose what is going to happen as yet is unclear. You know, some of the scenes, particularly that we've been seeing in the last 24 hours uh, in the context of the withdrawal from the areas around Kiev have been absolutely barbarous, uh, horrific stuff, the kind of things that are redolent of, of the, I suppose, the Yugoslavian wars or some of the, some of the slaughter that happened on those occasions. It's been horrendous. It has been absolutely horrific and Putin is guilty of the most incredible crimes um, and I suppose you know we need to do whatever we can diplomatically, politically, sanctions wise um, to leverage pressure on that and there are other things that the Irish government can do um, and I suppose the money that is going through the IFSC is an issue that Maria Farrell has been raising now for Let me just years. go to James. I know Sinn Féin has called for the expulsion of the Russian ambassador, but the government has repeatedly said that it cannot do something unilaterally. They've agreed to expel four diplomats. They did that in concert with other countries. What do you think the government should do? Are you one of the Fianna Fáil TDs who says that the Russian ambassador should be expelled? As a matter of fact, I'm actually one of the few that did not sign it, uh, for the very reason that I believe in crisis situations, that's where diplomacy becomes extremely important. I abhor uh, the actions of what Russia have done. I abhor the comments that have been made and the disinformation that has come from their diplomatic representation, particularly their ambassador in the Republic of Ireland. But when we expel an ambassador, it basically uh, impacts very heavily on our impact to express and state the state's opinion to foreign countries. So I think it's important that diplomatic representation should be maintained. And I'm also conscious, and it's important to say this, of the Irish citizens that are based in Russia 
There are uh, many hundreds of Irish citizens based in and around Moscow and St. Petersburg in particular, and it's important that we would actually have some regard for our citizens in Russia as well, because unfortunately, if we remove their, our, our ambassador to Russia, they will probably uh, uh, retaliate by doing the same uh, to our ambassador in Moscow. So that's something that I'm quite conscious of, but I want to say from the outset what Russia is doing is disgusting. They should stop it immediately, uh, and I'll, obviously I would fully support any efforts that are being made by government and the state to support Ukraine in their efforts to prevent Russia from making any further progress into the country. And uh, Dr. Theresa Reedy, how unified has Europe been so far? It seemed to show a lot of unity early on in terms of welcoming refugees, but this question of Russian oil and gas, it just can't agree. I, I think the EU actually has been strikingly united on this issue. It, it often takes um, months for the EU to come to a kind of consolidated position. I think their initial response actually showed great unity of purpose and quite a number of countries overcame kind of significant uh, domestic policy red lines. Germany most prominently in terms of its investment in its um, um, military. Um, uh, okay, now it's becoming a more uh, complicated conflict, but already in the last 24 hours, we've seen movement in a number of different uh, countries um, so that the fifth wave of sanctions, which are announced in the coming days, are likely to be more punitive again. So there's talk of more banks being um, expelled from the banking SWIFT system. Um, and there are moves as well, even in separating gas from oil and coal. Um, and, and, you know, countries may move on, on one of those, but perhaps not, the, uh, perhaps not the others. But I mean, we also have to kind of, I suppose, keep in mind that you can see the Germans, for example, are particularly dependent on Russian um, gas. They're also gravely concerned about pushing the entire continent of Europe into a deep recession, um, which potentially could be the fallout of, out of further sanctions. So there's a balancing act to be had here. But I think there has been considerable unity of purpose um, amongst, the, um, uh, amongst the EU leaders, and we, we've seen that for, for, for some time. But all the while, there are domestic issues that will have to be managed and negotiated Negotiated, but I think there's every reason to believe that that is going to happen um, from here on in. And Donica, Sinn Féin has been repeatedly accused recently of being weak on Russia, soft on Russia in the past, and there are examples of this. In 2018, um, when Ireland expelled a Russian diplomat after the Salisbury poisonings, Mary Lou Macdonald, uh, Sinn Féin came out against it. Mary Lou Macdonald said it was a flagrant disregard. It showed flagrant disregard for Irish unity. Back in December, just recently, your party's only MEP, Chris McManus, voted against an EU resolution condemning the Russian troop buildup on Ukraine. Can you just admit it, that Sinn Féin has got the Russian issue badly wrong? No, I don't agree. And I think some of the people who are trying to make an issue of this are trying to look for wedge issues where there aren't any and trying to find grounds to attack Sinn Féin and trying to capitalise what is a really profound international crisis. And uh, look, I mean, I... We are with, I think, the vast bulk of the Irish people in being absolutely disgusted at what Vladimir Putin is doing, uh, and we have regularly criticised Vladimir Putin. But how do you explain those previous? Positions? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think the, the in relation to the Salisbury issue, the issue there wasn't really so much in relation to the expulsion of diplomats, but the source of the intelligence. And if what had happened on that occasion was the same as what happened during the week, then we would have supported that, and we made that clear at the time that if it was based on Irish intelligence. Uh, that these people were involved in, in activities that they shouldn't have been involved in, then that they should be expelled. And we, we said that at the time, uh, but instead it was relied upon uh, British MI5 intelligence. In relation to the vote, some of them, Christmas Manus has regularly voted for resolutions condemning Vladimir Putin, condemning the Russian Federation. Some of these resolutions can be 12 pages long with multiple clauses. I'm not sure the detail of that particular motion, but I'm Is sure there was... Is it convenient that just recently Sinn Féin, it has been noted, deleted all its previous media statements on its website? There's been a lot of controversy around this. The party said it was just archiving outdated material, but it had the effect of deleting the evidence for all those previous positions taken. Yeah, like I, I've seen the story and I'm a bit mystified by so much has been made of it because I, uh, like I've had to, you know, sometimes you're trying to see what we've said on something in the past and I've searched there in the past and statements going back to 2005 and it was it was hard to find things to be honest like I mean and it was like I mean it was ultimately housekeeping the website did need to be changed in a lot of ways those statements that were issued over the course of the last 15 years because it went back right to 2005 they're in print in local national media sources they're on online archives they are in journalists inboxes 
they're there, they exist, they were published. There's no secret, there's no hiding them. There's lots of positions we have in the past that we stand over. There are positions we have had in the past that we've changed and we changed policy at Ardesh. There's no great secret. All the things that we have said can be found. They're still out there. They might be on the website, but they're in journalists' inboxes. They're in print. They're in archives. They're anywhere to be found. And, you okay. know, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's in any way connected to this particular story, to be honest. Well, let's move on to the Irish response here, because we know that Ireland is going to take in a huge number of refugees. Some of the estimates are that it could be, there could be 100,000 refugees from Ukraine, and that uh, presents huge practical issues. We've seen a lot of unity in the Dáil on welcoming refugees. There's not going to be limits on numbers, but the challenges around integration, around housing and schools. So, James, where do you get the money for that? Michael McGrath suggested it could cost 2.5 billion over the next couple of years. I think we have a duty as a state to do our, our bit internationally, uh, and I've been very lucky to be involved in many different uh, cases of people uh, who've been arriving into the country in recent weeks. And um, look, at the trauma, uh, what they've gone through, and what they've suffered, has been absolutely extraordinary. And I, as, a, as an elected TD uh, who serves uh, with, with a party that is in government, would fully support uh, funds being used uh, from, 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 I suppose, at the disposal of the public purse to support uh, refugees arriving into Ireland uh, from Ukraine. Uh, obviously, look, they, they were, they, I think the immediate, uh, the immediate source of funds will have to come from a degree of borrowing, uh, but I would see, uh, I suppose, measures being taken at a European level uh, in the months and weeks ahead, increased measures to help support uh, the relocation of people who want to come and live uh, in mem EU member states and also that those who may wish to, to live here temporarily what until the conflict comes to some degree of What about housing in particular? Darrow Bryan said last week that he could foresee a situation where 35,000 more houses are needed over the next five to six years to house refugees on top of the 33,000 annual requirement we know is needed also because of the backlog and the, the shortage of housing. How is the government going to handle that? It's going to be a very difficult issue. You know, I, I've no, I've no worry or, 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 I suppose, degree of hesitancy to say that the housing crisis is extraordinarily severe, uh, and that's just something that we have to work with. But we are one of the wealthiest countries in the world with the fourth highest standard of living, and I do think we have a very important role to play when it comes to housing refugees, and particularly those that are coming from Ukraine at the moment. It's an absolutely appalling situation internationally. You know, we're very fortunate that there's been many different people offering emergency accommodation, obviously. In the medium to long run, that's not going to be uh, uh, that's not going to be suitable. But I would like to see us expediting uh, uh, different areas that potentially could have a quite a rapid impact. Whether it's increasing the, the level of modular bills uh, as an emergency measure, that's one area that I would like to see us doing more work on. Obviously, I, I, this is a very court-based uh, issue. But in my own constituency, there are thousands upon thousands of homes that are planned but can't proceed because we don't have the wastewater treatment infrastructure. So when it comes to delivering permanent homes as well. We have a lot of work to do in areas of the country where houses could actually be built quite quickly, but they don't have the supporting infrastructure in place at the moment. So actually Cork is one of the places in the country that has a very big role to play in that regard. And Dr. Theresa Reedy, how does the government avoid this welcoming of, of Ukrainian refugees, this whole issue becoming a political football, and then this question of possibly us and them in relation to housing, in relation to schools, in relation to resources? Is it a difficult line to tread? I mean, I think there is a huge degree of goodwill, um, and I think also we've had previous examples where the state has actually incorporated um, quite a number of um, refugees fleeing conflict. Um, um, Donica mentioned the um, war in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. I mean, in Cork, there were quite a large number of Kosovars and people from other um, uh, parts of um, the kind of uh, Baltic state, or sorry, the Balkans, and that were adapted into Ireland. And, and that was done reasonably successfully, and there wasn't really kind of huge politicisation of the issue, and they were accommodated with instructions. So there are blueprints, and the early signs are also quite positive in terms of how the state has actually reacted and adapted to the situation. Situation. I think COVID has been very important in kind of changing how the state works and how the state operates. We, we now have a sense that, you know, things can be done that previously couldn't be done. It's a more agile response. So people coming in are getting emergency accommodation, but we know that they're also getting things like PPS numbers, school places are being located. So the, the system is actually responding, I think, better than perhaps we might have, uh, than we might have thought, um, maybe only for 
four or five years ago. I think the other thing to say as well is that this is a pan-EU issue. Um, so at the moment, the fiscal rules that kind of put a, a ceiling on what can be borrowed, they're, they're suspended at the moment because of COVID. There's every reason to believe um, that more flexible approaches will be uh, sustained for a longer period as the whole of Europe actually uh, deals with this. And I think we also have to, from a very early point, start engaging with the fact that many of the people who are here are actually going to be here for quite a while. They very much want to go home, but we've all seen the Russian atrocities. We've seen cities completely flattened and razed to the ground. So there's no question of people returning. There's nowhere for them to go back, at least in the short to medium term. So this is definitely going to be an enduring issue. But I think the signs of how it's been dealt with at the start are, are pretty positive. There's also nobody really politicising this into a kind of them and us issue because we, we've had these debates for a long time about Ireland. Why doesn't Ireland have a kind of a far right party? Um, you know, we've had a lot of migration since the late 1990s, yet migration is not really kind of a heavily politicised in the way that it is in other European uh, countries. And a lot of the, the reason for that is we don't have a party of the far right that's igniting these political issues. And I think that may indeed serve um, us all well. Uh, as we deal with this issue as, as well. There's no sign of that kind of dynamic emerging in, uh, in politics. So let's move on to the state of the parties, and I'm going to get uh, Theresa to do an overview in a second. But Donica, your seat in Cork South Central, you're the only opposition TD in a four-seat constituency with three colleagues, three constituency colleagues who all sit around the cabinet table. You've got the Taoiseach Micheál Martin, Public Expenditure Minister Michael McGrath, Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney, does that mean you've got the safest seat in the country? No, I'm not going to surprise anyone when I say no. Um, <laughs> but uh, look, I mean, I suppose, look, there's, uh, there's challenges and there's opportunities with a situation like that. But I, I might come back to something James said earlier about standing enough candidates. And look, I don't think it was for lack of standing candidates, even though we should have and we would like to have last time. But, but you'll run two in Cork South Central next time. We will, time, but right? I want to make the point that the reason we're not in government is because the other two larger parties didn't want to talk to us and they wanted to ensure that we were frozen out of the government talks. So, I think that that should be put on the record, and certainly we'll talk to any party, provided but it's on a good wasn't able to put together that coalition of the well, left. Listen, the numbers were there. Precisely that reason. We were happy to talk to those other parties too, uh, and they were not willing to engage with us and the programme we put before but them. next time you could be in pole position, so if you get that yeah. running mate in in Cork South Central. Yeah, well, look, that's <laughs> the objective, is to try and get running mates across the line anywhere we can, increase the numbers we get. And What's uh, a realistic seat projection for Sinn Féin? Look, I mean, you, can, you can tell us now. No, I don't, with us. I, I don't know that I can, but anyone, any sitting TD is going to be trying to bring in a running mate, I would say, in fairly every circumstances. That's going to be very challenging in a lot of constituencies. But look, I think there are huge opportunities out there. I think that people are really responding to what we're saying. Uh, and I think on some of those issues, such as the cost of living crisis, we're benefiting from the fact that we have been doing the groundwork on those issues for, for some time now. And I think we have succeeded in ensuring that the appetite for change that existed two years ago hasn't dissipated over the Just course of the last Just go back to Cork time. South Central. We know there could be at least six more TDs next time round. Do you think Cork South Central could go to a five-seater? I think it was in the past, wasn't it? I, I don't know on its current yeah. boundaries, but yeah. like, I mean, obviously when you're going to find six constituency TDs across the state, then I imagine there could be potential redraws yeah. and there's any amount of permutations. It's, it's very hard to know. Certainly, I think... There is a there is a, an anomaly in terms of Bishopstone being divided that uh, for I think to needs reunited. to be rectified. <laughs> um, I would push that, but it's very hard to know. Look, um, we're going to be going out there to get two seats in Cork South Central, um, and we'll, we'll have our, probably our convention yeah. this year. Um, but look, we. Uh, you know, James was talking a lot about uh, being in government and what you can do, and he's right. You can do more things in government. So. That's what we want to do last time. That's very much what we want to do this time, is we want to be in government. We want to deliver the radical program of change we're putting okay. before people. So, Theresa Reedy, give us the overview. What's the state of play now, two years on from the general election? Two years on from the general election, it's, it's quite a different picture, actually. Um, in the general election, um, I remember quite well being handed the opinion or the exit poll at uh, 10 o'clock that night, and our jaws literally hit the ground. Um, I mean, there had been some signs, but there was a three-way tie, um, and it really fundamentally changed um, how governments were formed. 
what happened right after the election, of course, is COVID struck, and, and you had this very unusual, what we call rally around the flag effect, um, where you had a caretaker government that was effectively managing an emergency, and there was a huge surge in support for Fine Gael right after the election. Now, that's pretty much dissipated right out of the, the system at, at this stage. Um, I think Fianna Fáil has had, you know, it, it's trending somewhat lower than where it was at the election, but it's, it's showing some signs of um, kind of a benefit from governing. So it's starting to trend back towards uh, 20. It, it's going slightly up and Fine Gael is going slightly down, um, but Sinn Féin is soaring. And, and there's no doubt about that. And, and it's kind of sharp progress um, at the 2020 general election has been sustained. And I would just pick up a kind of point um, to emphasize in relation to the candidates. I mean, Sinn Féin went into the 2020 general election in defensive mode. They were expecting to lose seats. They were deselecting candidates in the weeks leading up to the election. That's why they didn't have as many candidates as they did. So the, the huge Sinn Féin success took everybody by surprise. I'm sure not least Sinn Féin. Um, so so it's, it's quite interesting to see how their kind of um, kind of performance has continued uh, to uh, to increase, um, and they're now trending well above 30% in the polls, which will put them in a very strong position going into the next election. But I'd, I'd caveat that with with a couple of things. The first is that we're a long way from the next general election, and if you look at kind of coalition governments over the last 25 years, most of them have actually seen out their term. Um, it's pretty rare that they, they collapse. And even the kind of much maligned minority government, which was due to last for three years, actually lasted for four. So, I mean, of course, a government can fall at any time, but if we were kind of taking a step back, the chances are it probably will see out um, its term. So we are a long way from the uh, from the next uh, election. Um, and the other thing I suppose that's worth noting is that if we kind of take a longer look at uh, electoral politics now, the, the, the picture is one of, of disequilibrium. It's, it's one of fluctuation and volatility. Um, and that really peaked in, in 2011, and we're seeing that continuing in, in 2016 and, and 2020. There, there's there's no sense of us arriving at a kind of a new normal or that there is a new kind of settled position in the party system and it'll probably take two to three more elections before we can make a serious evaluation of that. So, you know, the election is probably some distance uh, away uh, and just based on what's happened at recent elections, I mean, it's still all to play for because voters are swapping. They are changing uh, from one political party to another um, at successive elections. So it's it's discontinuity, if you want, is, is the story of Irish elections. So James, let me come to you. Fianna Fáil, the story everyone's talking about in Fianna Fáil, the leadership and what's going to happen in December 2022 when uh, Micheál Martin swaps with the current Thánaiste, Leo Varadkar. Barry Cowan came out last week and said all those leadership ructions, they're, they're all over. He said there's going to be, a, what was it, a seamless transition, but there'll be a new leader uh, into the next election. What's your personal view? Who are you backing? Currently, the Taoiseach is in place at the moment, and our party leader, Michael Martin, I think he's had a really, really difficult time as Taoiseach. I, I, I don't, no matter what somebody's political views or opinions are, I think everybody could agree on that, that it's been a horrendous time to be uh, head of government. Um, I, I fully support the Taoiseach. I've worked with him. Obviously, there's been a lot of difficulties along the way. As people could understand, managing a pandemic has not been easy, particularly... Do, do you support him leading the party into the next election, or do you think after it's, he's what, 11 years now uh, leading Fianna Fáil? Is it time for somebody new for the next election? It's important to say, I think, when, when each person in the backbenches of a party and government, uh, you know, makes a comment about their party leader and what they should or shouldn't do, you know, it, it obviously has a, a bit of a destabilising impact. But I, I genuinely think for the Taoiseach, it's a decision to make, and I would fully support him in that regard. I would like to see Hall continuing on in, in public office in the future. I'd actually love to see him running for the R's at some stage if he, if he decided to do that. Okay, heard it you here know. first. Yes, yeah, I, 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 I've actually, I was lucky enough to start out my political career oh, working Oh, you interned with him? I did, yes. in transition year, and uh, I've known him for some time, and he gave me my first Who was the other politician you interned with? Jim O'Callaghan. Oh, I yes, see. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, interesting. So. Uh, a potential uh, leadership contender there as well. So where does your loyalty lie? You uh, know? No comment. <laughs> but, uh, I, look, I think it was, it was a very interesting experience, you know, but I, I have to say that he's, I think he's doing a good job at the moment. It's not easy, and I will openly admit that there are some serious challenges facing the government, uh, particularly when it comes to correcting the economy after COVID, dealing with the inflation issue, which is really but very concerning. But if he gambling on housing, really, on the housing, housing being fixed by yes. the next election, you need the government to stay in power 
stay together for long enough to fix that problem. If it doesn't work, Fianna Fáil are going to you know, lose loads of seats. Yes, and, and like there's, there's many different areas in the housing crisis that are dysfunctional that we need to do more work on. Uh, as I pointed out to you, wastewater treatment, getting service land, which may sound quite boring, but when it comes to the mechanics of getting houses built, it's, it's an extraordinary issue. And I have a lot of concerns as a backbench TD in that area, particularly considering my own constituency. Uh, you know, it may end up actually being a three-seater someday, given the population growth there, um, to the south of Cork East. So, you know, it, it, there are a lot of areas that we need to do more work to improve upon. Stabilising the housing situation is something that I think the government should put full focus on over the next 12 months. It was embarrassing last week when a memo went to Cabinet about the auto-enrolment for pensions and it was admitted that in the future there will be fewer people who own their own homes, so the government needs to push people towards having their own private pensions. That's an admission of failure. I wouldn't agree with that. I think the reality is people are living longer. The dependency ratio is actually staggering. It's going to decrease uh, to two to one. So there's going to be two people working for every one person that's going to be on a state pension. And I think we have to be absolutely clear that if people in this room want to look forward to getting their state pension someday, we have to make some extremely difficult decisions. I'd even say that to people in their 40s and 50s. So, you know, it's very, very concerning. And this is just back to fiscal prudence. You know, we've come through a really, really difficult time for, for society and also for the economy. And that's something that we need to balance. That's not easy politically. It's something you get a hammering for. Uh, we'll know the outcome of that after the next general election. And I'd even encourage Dunica and Sinn Féin perhaps be, to be more, uh, I suppose, careful in that regard when it comes to the pension issue, because I, I, I cannot see it being Sinn Féin maintained did well the way it is. the pensions issue in the last election, Dunica, wasn't it? A, you went with what people wanted at the time, which was uh, to defer that rise in the pension, pension age. Yeah, look, I mean, the other thing is, we will back the government where they do the right thing and in broad terms and obviously some of the detail we'll have to see auto enrolment is a good idea it's something we've been talking about for for three or four years at this stage um we would have some concerns about maybe that the ntpf could play a bigger role rather than the private firms but by and large it's a good idea in principle so and, and the other thing i want to say just in relation to fiscal prudence you go through our budgets we have stuck to the fiscal rules we would close the deficit by just as much as the government would we would do it in a very different way we would ensure that people who can afford to contribute more to the coffers would but we would meet those targets and that has been outlined in every budget now just in relation to the pensions issue and i have dealt with the auto enrollment stuff and there are things that we can do and it's true an awful lot of us are living longer and living healthier longer and the likes of myself, and I'm sure many people in this room, will be in a position to work until they're 67 and perhaps longer. I want to see us get rid of mandatory retirement. We've tried to do that on a number of occasions. Government hasn't uh, got their finger out and dealt with it, even though they said that they agree with it. But I cannot be convinced, I've said this before, I cannot be, con be convinced that it is right to ask a mason or a, a carer or a bricklayer to work on, to force them to work until they're 67, when they have been laying blocks, lifting patients, doing hard physical work that's demanding, and very often they're likely to be the ones who are least able to retire early. I don't think it is right to force those people to work until they're 67. I don't think that that's sustainable. I think that there are other ways, including auto-enrollment, okay. of addressing the pensions issue, and we do have to address it, but that's, that, for me, that's just not right. Okay. Okay, well, now we are going to open it up to the floor. So I'm joined by David Murphy, our political coverage editor. He's going to go around with a microphone to the students, and we're hoping for lots of questions to anyone on the panel. Thanks, Sandra. So if anyone on this side of the house, where I am now, has any questions, just stick your hand in the air. Yourself there, let me just walk over to you here. It's a great room you have here. It's very easy to walk across. So what's your name? Tell us, what's your question? Uh, my name is Elias. <coughs> uh, I'd like to ask the Fianna Fáil TD, how we can ask the Irish people to further trust Fianna Fáil after time and time again Fianna Fáil have proven themselves deeply flawed with controversies such as Charles Haughey, Bertie Ahern and the continuous failure of Fianna Fáil to address the housing crisis. I believe since 2014 Fianna Fáil have been saying we can't build houses just like that. When will Fianna Fáil finally take action and stop making milquetoast appeals to people for optical reasons? There you go James, tough question. You've only got two hours to answer, off you go. <laughs> It, it, it might be fair if I start the year I was born in 97, and we, 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 might, we might try and leave what was behind that behind that, because I'm, I'm not overly aware of it. Okay. Um, I would say to Fianna Fáil's track record in government, obviously there's been enormous issues around the economy, I accept that, any Fianna Fáil TD will tell you that straight, but overall you have to look at the success of the state over the last number of decades, it has been absolutely staggering. 
Our standard of living internationally is, is one of the best in the world. People want to come here and work from all over the world. Companies want to invest here. So, you know, if we want to be fair, we live in an extremely, you know, a successful economy, a society that's vibrant. We have one of the youngest working populations in the world. And, you know, I'm not saying that's all FIDA Fall is doing, but I would say that stable government has been a crucial part of that. I've no problem uh, by, uh, when I, one of the reasons I joined Fianna Fáil, as a matter of fact, I, I thought that Mihal Martin was an exceptionally decent individual who I felt was the right type of person I wanted leading the government. And I have to admit that our government ministers now have been doing exceptionally hard work. Uh, they haven't been in government in a time that's been very popular, but, you know, I, I've no qualms about why I joined the party. I'm going to continue to serve and run for the party. I think it is an exceptionally important role to play in our society. I'm sorry you feel that way, um, but I would say that, you know, if you look over the course of the last century of the state, Fianna Fáil has been a fundamental part of the success story that is Ireland. Okay, James, um, I think Micheál Martin is going to love you after that podcast. So we've got another question here. What's your name? My name is Jacob, and my question is related to the cost of living to both TDs. The rising cost of living is affecting students all over the country. For example, many of us have to continue to work part-time in order to fund our studies. What would you tell us students to do now because we feel we are losing more money than putting into our own education? So, Donica, do you want to take that question? Yeah, look, I mean, I suppose in terms of asking students what to do, like, I mean, I, I think that comes back a little bit to the issue of the, the choice kind of stuff that the government has been putting out there. I'm sure there are things that students can do a bit different and if you can work a few hours and all that kind of stuff, but that's not really the point. The point is that the structure... Uh, the structure of both the market and the, I suppose, national education system is very much facing against you at this moment in time. I think Susie is a massive issue. It's not just about whether you qualify or not. It's about who few, how few people get the full grant. Uh, and even if you do get the full grant, how far it stretches, uh, it doesn't really stretch anywhere near far enough when you take into account um, the costs that are there. And obviously there's the issues outside of that in terms of of rent uh, in Cork and in Dublin, which is absolutely astronomical. Very often students are probably competing with low-income families who are on HAP for some of the properties around the fringes of the city. Uh, that can be very, very uh, challenging. Uh, it's not in anyone's interest. Um, so for me, there's a number of things that we need to do to help students. Um, and I think the first is we need to increase the threshold at which you qualify for Susie. Yeah raise that uh, and increase the amount um, because it's not anywhere near enough to meet the cost of living. And I suppose the other thing is building more purpose-built student accommodation on campus, uh, which I think is a, is a very significant one because you want good quality accommodation, you want it to be affordable. Ideally, you want the universities to be playing a part in it as well. Those are, I think, the key solutions. But the cost of living applies across so many issues. There could be students in this room, potentially, that are children are affected by childcare. There could be, you know, could be driving from someplace up North Cork, like Dremaine or someplace like that, and petrol is a big uh, ask for them. So, like, I mean, it is, like any part of society, there's so many factors. Okay, we have another, we have another question up here from uh, Kevin. Kevin, you have a question for James, and maybe we might just ask Teresa to comment on it immediately afterwards. Um, hi, um, just um, a point on the fact that you spoke twice tonight about how we have the second, or the, the fourth highest um, standard of living um, in the world, or whichever you said. We also have a very, very high uh, cost of living. You know, the standard of living, I mean, people in this room, the likelihood of us getting housing in the next immediate years following college is, is near zero in terms of permanent accommodation, and yet we see a housing, um, a housing, housing being built in the middle of the country that they returned all the deposits that were given. Um, have you any comment on that? Yes, I do. The housing crisis, as you've rightly identified, is an issue that affects the majority of us, the vast majority of us in the room tonight, including myself. I don't own a property. I live with my parents. I'm 24 years of age now. Um, and it's an issue that's affecting many people of my own age group and, and, and indeed much older. Uh, I would like to see one particularly targeted area dealing with dereliction. I think that's a very important issue, particularly in our inner cities. If you walk around the streets around Cork City, whether you're in any of the urban towns that surround the city here, uh, no matter where you go, it's an enormous issue. And I think we need to look at that particular, uh, that particular um, route in terms of trying to address a short-term uh, solution to providing additional housing units, particularly for those that are in university, those that are studying in third level, uh, and that's one 
rapid area of, of action the government needs to properly resource and fund because from speaking to people it's extraordinarily complex uh, when it comes to for example dealing with conservation architects dealing with with other other red tape that's in place at the moment it's quite difficult so I, I really do feel there's an opportunity in our inner cities uh, in many of our major towns to bring additional accommodation units in you know the types of accommodation that students would be looking to rent whether they're two three bed flats um, you know I, I was I was in one of those myself until actually last month uh, in Dublin uh, renting with a friend so you know that's an area that we, we have not done enough on uh, in, historically in Ireland and we need to really really focus on as well David can I just say as well the purpose-built student accommodation I know Dunica referenced it there that is a really important issue for me we do not have enough of it in Ireland as some of our UK counterparts have a lot more uh, stock available uh, through their, their, their different uh, third level institutes and the universities provide students with affordable accommodation and I really would like to see the Minister for, for Higher Education and the Minister for Housing working together uh, to address your previous question asked as well to provide additional units that are at the disposal of universities rather than the private rental accommodation being provided funded through pension funds and, uh, and cuckoo funds as well. Unfortunately they're extraordinarily expensive and are beyond the remit of many people. I think we could have complete agreement in relation to accommodation uh, being provided for university students amongst the, the three of us. It's music to our ears here in the university. We would love to see more accommodation made available because it's an acute crisis and it gets worse every uh, single year. Um, uh, Kevin is one of my students, uh, so thank you for your question, Kevin. I suppose it's worth also saying, though, that housing is, is an overhang over everything thing else and it, it colours much of the picture, but there are other things that we need to keep in mind. For example, one of the is that graduate employment remains very strong, um, that uh, youth unemployment actually came down faster after the pandemic than we expected, that there are now more people in work than there were before the, the, the pandemic. So it, it's, a, it's a more nuanced picture, uh, perhaps, um, but the problem is that housing is the housing shortage is so severe and it's such a source of stress uh, for, for individuals that it really is kind of colouring or overhanging um, most of these, uh, these other issues. I would just put in a little bit of speculation if you want as well because you mentioned that housing is the kind of central plank for the Fianna Fáil government. Of course there's also the possibility that they could uh, focus in on education and there is a big question about where Michal Martin is going to go after he uh, steps down as Taoiseach um, which department is he going to go into I think there'd be a lot of people very interested um, to see if he was to go into higher education because he did ask for that ministry to be created um, so there's potential uh, for them to, to look in there but it will only work if there's huge investment in, in higher education because the higher education system is really creaking at the, the seams. Investment levels are so low and they have been for about a decade and a half now um, that the system is really, really struggling. It's actually extraordinary that it continues to perform as well as it does given the kind of financial restraints that we have had. So it would be very interesting to see if there was um, more income and perhaps high level political interest in the system. Okay, we have one other question here. Uh, sorry, hi, I'm Jamie. Uh, this is a question for James O'Connor, who's my local constituent. Um, the opposition had the past few years have been talking a lot about Irish unity, and I just want to know what your kind of stance is on this. And if there was an election within five years, what would the part, what would your party, would they go along with said election, or would they oppose it? Thanks very much. Very interesting question. It's one I'm very passionate about. Uh, look, I'd like to see United Ireland well within my own lifetime. Uh, and I suppose from my own perspective, just to start with that, I, I've been to Northern Ireland on a couple of occasions now and actively researched into the issue. Uh, but what really strikes me when you go north of the border is just how, I suppose, difficult the situation is in terms of the polarisation of politics in Northern Ireland. And that's something I'd be quite concer concerned about. If the question is asked too soon, and this is a very important point to make. I think it would be wrong for us to push a referendum. It's obviously not within our gift. In the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, it's the Northern Ireland Secretary of State that has the, uh, the, the capacity to call a referendum. But I think we're a little bit too soon. But I do think it is actually on the horizon in a way that I don't think anybody would have said 10 years ago, uh, even five years ago. Uh, a Brexit has shown people uh, in relation to you know the, the view that the mainland UK, in terms of the, particularly England, has on issues that affect you know the peripheries of the country and, and, and Northern Ireland as well uh, and I, I think that's an important point to make so I'd love us to see us having a referendum on this issue probably you know after 2030 being realistic 
Uh, I think it probably would give more time for a debate to be had, for research to be done. Something I actually called for was the establishment perhaps of a Minister of State uh, to undertake preparation work uh, to potentially have a referendum that the state in terms of the 26 counties of the Republic of Ireland would be ready in the eventuality that that would actually happen. Uh, and in terms of the party's position, Fianna Fáil is one of the very first uh, key principles of the party that we want to see a 32 county United Ireland, uh, but obviously that has to be delivered in a way that is peaceful. Uh, there was a lot of division within the, I suppose, the nationalist community as around how that's going to be delivered. I'm sure Dunica will, will, will give comment to that as well. But um, I, I would be very, very concerned to avoid violence. And, you know, we've seen in recent weeks just how, I suppose, unstable the situation is in the north. Obviously, the assembly elections are coming up and they will be very, very interesting. We'll all be watching that with a very keen eye. So, you know, that's going to guide, I suppose, Northern Ireland politics for some time. Uh, we have to be very conscious of that in the Republic. Okay. We just have another question here from Reuben, and then I'm going to hand it back to uh, Sandra Hurley. Reuben. Just, um, we've just seen Ivana Bacic be elected as leader of the Labour Party. In her by-election last year, she surprised all of us, I think, in a wave of momentum, leaving behind Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. And my question would be uh, to Dr. Theresa Reedy, do the other parties need to be worried? Do they need to look out and do you think Ivana could replicate her success? Oh, I think the harsh answer to that is probably no. Um, I, I think uh, Ivana Bacic is a was an excellent choice of candidate in that constituency. I think she'd run in several less uh, electable constituencies for her in, in, in previous cases, so she should have probably been a TD already. Uh, but I think the Labour Party has particular um, problems that it will take more than a successful leader to, to address. And to put a bit of meat on that, at the 2020 election, we asked all of the voters um, a whole series of questions in a post-election study. And so we asked them, which political party do they trust on housing? So Sinn Féin came out on top. In relation to health, it was pretty close between Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil. In relation to management of the economy, um, Fianna Gael were right up there. The climate, uh, no surprises, the Greens were there. The Labour Party wasn't there in any of them. It, it, it doesn't own the big issues that matter for voters when they go into to polling stations. Um, and and that's, that's a big challenge uh, that the party faces. It, it really needs to present itself as a party that is um, that has meaning and relevance when it comes to the big issues of the day. Now, I think the Labour Party is the oldest party in the state and it's had electoral ups and downs before, so I'm not predicting the end of the Labour Party or, or anything uh, of that uh, nature, but I think in terms of its kind of regrowth strategy, it's one that actually, it will require a lot of care and attention to position itself and it has to choose issues and work on issues that really matter to voters. Um, and, you know, candidates alone won't and leaders won't make uh, those changes. Um, voters will go into the poll stations and they will vote for the party that they think will deliver on what matters for them. Well, thank you everybody for all your questions. I want to ask Donica just a last question there. Somebody referenced, uh, I think it was James referenced the assembly elections. Of course, it's, it's the next election on this island. Polls are showing that Sinn Féin could create history here and it could come back to the assembly with the highest number of seats. Do you think that's possible? And do you see the DUP agreeing to take that deputy first minister post? Yeah, look, is it possible? It's absolutely possible. Is it something we're going to be taking for granted? No. Um, we're feeling a very strong team of candidates. Um, we're very hopeful of taking um, and holding um, the vast majority of our seats coming from uh, a record election on the last occasion. Um, we're working very hard. We're, I think, look, at the minute, there is a bit of an attempt by the DUP and others to try and focus on a negative agenda. That's not what we're focused on. We're focused on how we can deliver, we're focused on housing, we're focused on the cost of living, we're focused on a lot of the issues uh, that are animating the public uh, south of the border as well, and we're going to stay focused on our positive message. The other thing I want to say, just in relation to, like James's point, in relation to division and all that kind of stuff, and undoubtedly there are challenges, I believe that we need to be, I, I think it is a dereliction of duty not to be planning and preparing for Irish unity, because we, we need to prepare, we need to plan, because and ultimately only the heft of a government and the, the resources available could to government can do that properly. But the other thing I'd say about society in the north is you look at some of the kind of legislation that is coming out of um, out of the assembly in the last couple of weeks in terms of safe access zones, in terms of period poverty, in terms of some of the votes that have been there in relation to uh, marriage equality, all sorts of issues in the last couple of years. 
whatever about unionism and nationalism, there is a progressive majority emerging in the Assembly, there is a progressive majority emerging in the North. Uh, and after the next election, we want to see the institutions back up. We want to see, I believe, I hope Michelle O'Neill will be uh, the First Minister and I hope she will be leading an inclusive, forward-looking executive that can deliver for people. Will the DUP serve under her? I, or not even under her. That's not uh, that's not the way it works. It's a joint it's, office, it's, but exactly. yeah, it's yeah, a, it's a joint office, and I suppose. But will they serve within that executive? Um, like, I mean, that's uh, look. That's something they're going to have to make their their own minds up. I think it would Could be. Could I come to uh, Dr. Theresa Reedy on that? I think it would be aggressive if they did not, because like you know, everyone else is engaged with the executive in good faith. What What's your view? What do you, how do you think it's going to play out? Oh, in Northern Ireland. I, I have to say we don't work very much on the elections there. I suppose it's a very uncertain picture um, at the moment. Could I pick up more on, on the kind of question yeah. of the, the referendum on, um, uh, on on unity? I think it's, it's a very delicate balance um, at the present time. We've seen how the conversation on the protocol has destabilised, you know, the, the kind of uh, political balance in Northern Ireland, and I think um, you know conversations and pushing for further discussions about unity are probably actually making that um, making that worse, um, and, and kind of exaggerating tensions that are um, there at the at the present time. And we're seeing a lot of that actually playing out in the assembly elections. Partially, it's what triggered the election um, in the in the first place. Uh, and I think then more generally, we haven't really delved into the sentiment in the Republic either. I mean, there's certain majority soft nationalist sentiment um, but we've never really looked properly at the kind of conditions that those voters might kind of insert into um, any debate or discussion that would take about Irish unity so I think there's a lot of value to be had in, in um, probably de deliberative fora and mini publics um, which have been used around other quite controversial issues but I think it's probably better understanding these are happening over a decade if not many more decades um, rather than kind of pressing for kind of immediate decisions on any of these things. And James can I ask you something that's come up a lot lately is the question of Ireland's neutrality both the Taoiseach and the Taunashtha have suggested that this should be open to debate. Leo Varadkar's probably gone a bit further. He's said that Fine Gael should oppose the triple lock. Uh, what do you think about this within Fianna Fáil? Uh, Mio Martin has said that Ireland should be open to moving to adapt. He wants to open the conversation and maybe change things. It's a very interesting conversation, and obviously we're coming into it in the context that Ireland's military power abroad and, and, and indeed here and at home is with extremely limited capacity. I think our active service personnel is at approximately 11,000, so you know it's a big, big issue, and I think we're going to have to consider increasing investment in the Defence Forces quite significantly. Obviously, the review that was recently done into the Defence Forces had but three that's options. But not, not controversial, really. Most but people I agree actually, that I there should be more funding I, for the Defence Forces. It, it, I have a big interest in, in the issue but I, I would say that's a concern I have, that we're having a debate nearly about our, our, our status militarily, internationally, uh, when our own defence forces are not capable of doing the job which we, we need them to do. And that's been as a consequence of underinvestment down through the decades. And I think we need to now grow up and have that conversation about increasing in expenditure on defence uh, and looking at paying conditions as well for members of the defence forces, which is a huge issue when it comes to retention. When it comes to our involvement in an organisation such as NATO, you know, I would like us to see perhaps doing a lot more coordination with our other EU colleagues uh, when it comes to the defence of, I suppose, democratic, open and free democracies right across the European, uh, European continent. I, I would like us to see uh, having a more active role when it comes to the defence of, of democracies, particularly in the face of autocracy. And that's what has happened, unfortunately, in Ukraine, obviously, which is outside the European Union. Uh, and that's, that's something we need to be quite conscious of, because if you look at the, the Baltic states in particular, the concern that they have about Russian aggression is absolutely staggering. For example, in Estonia, they have weapons, de de they have weapon depots that are buried in the forest that members of the public are are going to be told to go and use in the eventuality of a Russian invasion. So we don't, we're alien to that type of, of conflict, uh, particularly in recent decades. But I would very, very much the view that we now need to start to engage in it and and and, and live up to our responsibilities on the international so, stage. So you're open to having that debate, Dr. Yes. Theresa Reedy, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I think it's essential that we have this debate because I think um, neutrality is very nebulous and, and ill-defined um, in, in the public mind. And, and there's a kind of a, a view of neutrality that's not necessarily rooted in the reality of the 21st century state that we live in. Um, you know, we've been insulated by geography from a lot of the 
problems that many of our near neighbours in, in uh, continental Europe have had to face up to. And I think we also don't ever really connect our commercial interests um, with other foreign policy interests and our defence interests. So just, you know, in the last couple of months, we've been having a discussion about the Russian embassy based in Ireland. Why does the Russian embassy have such a huge embassy in Ireland? Uh, and we have to kind of recognise and begin connecting the dots. Is that anything to do with our commercial interests? Is this anything to do with the fact that the Silicon Six are all located in Dublin? That's where they have their European headquarters. We're a crucial cog in the global economic system, and we benefit enormously from the global economic system. Um, so some of that immaturity around our kind of foreign policy, I think we need to wake up to the reality of what it means to be neutral. If you are neutral, you have to be able to defend yourself, and we can't defend ourselves. And I don't mean in a kind of First World War, um, you know, trenches kind of way. War is, is different in, in the 21st century. We can't defend ourselves from serious cyber attack. Uh, and that's probably the most likely threat that we will face in this I state. Sinn Féin, sorry, very, yep, very qu quickly. Uh, Donica, Sinn Féin are dead against this discussion. We're not, look, you know, a debate is fine and debate is healthy, but we're very clear about where we stand. Uh, we stand for neutrality, and I suppose my own view, and there are things we can do, certainly in terms of, you know, the, the wages of people in the Defence Forces would probably be the first thing I'd focus on. There's a lot of people in this constituency and, and other constituencies that are practically on the breadline, even though they're uh, in the Defence Forces. So, like, I mean, that would be the first one for me. There are issues around cybersecurity. I think we could certainly uh, do a lot more to ensure that the state is insulated against that. But in, in, in global terms, and, you know, this can be, you know, people can throw things about maturity or immaturity. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily all that helpful all the time because, for me, it comes down to where can Ireland play a bigger role? Uh, is it militarily or is it in terms of its long tradition as uh, a non-military um, a, a country that's not in any military alliances that has played a significant okay. role in peacekeeping and international bodies? And I think, you know, given the size of the country, we can play a much bigger role in that regard. And I think we have and I think we will continue to do so. And I think we should. OK, well, Thank you, everybody, especially our audience, for coming along. It's great to see so many people here. That's all from this special broadcast live from UCC. I'd like to thank all our guests, Sinn Féin TD, Donegal O'Leary, Fianna Falls, James O'Connor, and Dr. Theresa Reedy from UCC. Goodbye until next week.